All right, welcome everybody. It's podcast number thirteen, Lucky One Three, and we have a. Uh, we've been looking forward to this show for quite a while. We got Councillor Kirk Soroka. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of background. We're going to ask uh, his background before he got into politics because it's pretty unique. And uh, and Kevin Nagoya here for uh, manager, the CEO for City of Coal Lake. And we're going to have some fun. We're going to. It's going to be uh, the theme. I think is going to be a lot about uh, the airplanes and aviation. I, I think we're going to dabble into. Uh, Kirk's uh, background for sure, but uh, let's uh, jump right into Kirk. Welcome to our podcast here. We're uh, we're really excited to have you. I'm glad to be here. At, uh, you know, I've never done a bi- podcast. I've never even watched a podcast. I wasn't quite sure what it was you were asking me to do. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have fun. Uh, we're breaking in slowly, like we we've done the others, but. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know uh, about you, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, we got to know each other before you threw your name in the hat. And, and you you know, one, you're one of the, f- I think, uh, one of the few people that uh, uh, that's approached me about uh, council that uh, I think, you know, of all the people, I think you, you did a lot of homework on uh, wanting to understand what this role was, because I think... Uh, you had, you know, you really wanted to make sure that this is what you wanted to do. And uh, we're excited that uh, the, the lecturer uh, voted you in. Uh, you have a, a, a diverse background. And so let's dive into this uh, background of yours. It's unique. Uh, Kevin was, uh, before we did the show, uh, you know, is, um, I forgot that uh, on the ballot, you so had your call sign, call sign Rambo. Yeah, Rambo was on there. Yeah, we talked yeah. to municipal affairs to make sure that rule, because it was our interpretation under the, uh, the Elections Act there that uh, that uh, it spoke silently to this uh, to this issue and uh, we were right uh, that was it's the first time that i've got to see uh, you know it goes kirk rambo soroka like it's just like well this guy's gonna get elected how do you not get elected everybody's gonna get a vote on this guy yeah. <laughs> what made you want to put uh, rambo in there well, it was simple, simple reason is that no one knew me by my Christian name, Kurt, right? Even I don't think my wife knew me by my first name. <laughs> my son certainly didn't. Um, so I thought that uh, once people saw who Rambo on the bout, certainly the folks from the base would know, oh yeah, that's the, the former wing operations officer. And, uh, you know, they would know my background, what I'm like, the way I think, and uh, would probably give me a chance. Yeah, for those that don't know, let's talk about your background. You worked on, obviously on Fort Wing. What did you do out there? Uh, well, I was, I, let me back it up a little yeah. bit and I'll tell you how I got my call sign. It probably interests Oh, yeah. We, well. well, we were going to get into that dirt. Yeah. Okay. Well, at the wing, okay, I'll come back and ask you a question. So at the wing, uh, I started out as uh, essentially just a Nugget student pilot in 19, gosh, I got here in 96 and um, went through my training, ended up at 441 Squadron as one of the, the tactical leaders on the aircraft. Completed my fighter weapons instructor course, uh, got sent over to 410 to to teach the fighter weapons instructor course, which is kind of like Canada's uh, Top Gun, uh, you know. And I don't, uh, you know, look like those those guys on the movie. But oh, come uh, on now. at the end of the day, um, for my sins, I uh, got picked up and sent over to England. Did an exchange with the uh, the British, and came back to Canada. Jumped on to uh, 409 Tactical Fighter Squadron as a as a deputy commanding officer or the number two and um, took over Maple Flag and then got promoted and became um, essentially the, the number two fighter pilot or the senior fighter pilot on the on the base working for uh, Colonel LaRoche back in 2011-13 before I retired. Before you retired. Now, how did you get into this, the fighter pilot? Like, like let's back it up. Where, where, where were you born and raised? Like, Oh, so I, I was actually, um, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in Maine. My dad was in the uh, United States Air Force. He's from Texas. That's where most of my family's from. And my mother was a Newfoundlander. So wow. I got a, the a best. Texas of, and a Newfoundlander getting yeah, together. Yeah, That's so, crazy. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it was an interesting uh, childhood, to say the least. And, but uh, so I got to really to enjoy the, the best parts of both worlds, both Absolutely. from the U.S. and Canada. Wow. So I'm a dual citizen. And um, I don't think I became a Canadian until I was eight. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of that in common. Huh? Yeah, uh, about our, about our, our citizenship and how it came about it. Yeah, uh, yeah but we talked about that before. Yeah, it's neat. You know, your dad being in the form, you know, former pilot, right? No, he was a technician on B 52s during, during the Vietnam War. Wow. wow. Yeah. My other uncle, my uncle was uh, in the artillery in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, and I think, uh, have you ever heard of say, you know, what, what kind of music do you want to play? 
Doesn't matter. Just play it loud. <laughs> he, was totally, he was totally like that. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah, whole family of military, right? That's yeah. pretty, quite, a, quite a background. So. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, you got rolled into the army. Yeah. So I enlisted uh, in, in uh, 1981 um, and eventually went into the infantry by 83. My, when I enlisted, I, I joined to go fight in the Falklands. Um, but obviously the Falklands was over long before I could ever get trained. I ended up in uh, the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry, uh, posted to Victoria, B.C. at Workpoint Barracks. That's, uh, those were kind of my formative years as a, as a soldier. Um, accelerated promote to Master Corporal. I think I was promoted to Master Corporal in uh, 1986, so I would have been 22. And uh, I was in reconnaissance. I was a qualified paratrooper, sniper, all that kind of foolishness. So. And what made you want to get into aviation, a pilot? Um, actually I was in Wainwright. I knew that, uh, um, there was a few reasons why I decided to leave the infantry, but I wanted to go to the air force, which is where all, you know, good soldiers go for a break after their, their time in uh, combat arms. And I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in the air force because I didn't really know much about it. And then, uh, down in Wainwright, uh, we were out on, on, a, on a training exercise with me with two, two other soldiers in my detachment and an F-18 flew by mm. and I thought, Hey, there that guy's in the air force. I'm going to do that. And uh, I knew it was an F-18 cause it was brand new, but it would have been like 1987 or so. Nice and shiny. A yeah. lot of people don't know that uh, the pilots here go down to Wainwright a lot to train, right? And vice versa. Uh, they'd certain, they, we would go down there and train with the Army on joint or collective training exercises. Uh, not sure how much they do it now, but that, that is a, a, a continuation of the, the war in Afghanistan mm-hmm. because the integration of, uh, of air power with the land forces when the enemy is really close is a significant, uh, I guess, a force multiplier when you can call in an, an aircraft, even a show of force will generally change their will to fight, particularly if they know the you know, mass mass uh, explosive and, and weapons can rain down on them at will. Yeah. How many conflicts overseas have you been in? Uh, I was involved in three, three missions. I did uh, the... Uh, war, uh, the Kosovo War in 1999. I followed that up with a police action in the Balkans uh, over Croatia and Bosnia. And then I went back, uh, I was in Italy f- and was involved with the, the uh, Libyan Air War. When we go on a tour of the wing, uh, it's amazing those bullets that are in the machine gun, the size of them. Like that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 20 millimeter cannon shell. I'm 61. Wow. And Kevin, you were up in a plane there and you got to experience. Uh, are you going to become a pilot? No, 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 I'm not. Uh, that's not for me. <laughs> Little place like that. But uh, I was up with, uh, you know, in the T-Bird uh, uh, a couple of air shows ago. Uh, that was, uh, you know, those guys know what they're doing. You you know, they are, I tell mm-hmm. you, they can definitely black you out. They, they had me blacked out, no problem. Although I yeah. didn't throw up or anything like that. But uh, yeah. um, I got to learn a lot of what, uh, you know, how much pressure that body is under. I had to go home and have a big nap. Yeah. So you're talking about G-forces, right? So the way a G-force works right now, everybody that's around the table or listening on the podcast are experiencing one G, which is equates to your normal weight. Um, Centrifugal force or acceleration is how you turn. You feel it when you turn your car, but it's such a a small fraction. When you're flying an aircraft, um, the acceleration uh, can go, particularly in the F-18, uh, you will say 7G, right? So what that means is that a 200-pound man, as he is right now, at 7G weighs 1,400 pounds. Your, 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 your head weighs about 20 pounds. At 7G, that's 140 pounds. So that's why you'll see a lot of older fighter pilots like like me and my buds that, you know, we're, we're a little bit slower to turn our heads because all that goes into your neck and lower back. Wow. So I lost an inch flying the F-18. Really? Yeah, I was 6'1 when I started. I'm only 6 foot now. Wow. Wow. Did they tell you that in the fine print when you uh, enrolled? No, 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 no. <laughs> You're going to lose the inch of your height. Yeah. Well, no. there's a maximum height in the uh, F-18s. You're a tall person. It's not so much a maximum height. It's no? the, oh. no, it's your hip oh, to okay. knee oh, ratio. Oh, okay, okay. It's I got, see, it's I got, see. It had to do primarily with, I believe, the uh, the T-Bird. So, guy, so you can have, because you could end up oh, in any I aircraft. See. You had to make sure that your uh, that length was okay. like fat, you know fixed wing jets that you could eject because if your legs underneath and you eject then yeah. you yeah. leave the bottom of your legs in the airplane. Yeah. So everybody's wanting now. We've we've teased this out. 
long enough, how did you get your call sign? And yeah. why do pilots over in the wing all have call signs? Because that seems to be like you, the only name they know. From. I mean, yeah. you guys go around and you call each other all the different call signs and it's amazing. Yeah. How, did, how did you get your so, ra- Rambo? So the history of the call signs is got, it goes back to really kind of World War II. Even though fire pods existed since World War One, World War II is the first time that they could talk to each other. Like, you know, with their, with the radios on board and no, you know, although their, their flight call signs were generally blue one and red four and things like that, because you're numbered one, two, three, four, you know, as a four ship of fighters. Right. But what they found was that in combat, uh, you know, in the heat of, of turning and burning with enemy aircraft, trying to shoot you down, that they could get your attention by calling your name. Right. Um, so they had actually used their first names. Now, I don't know how it evolved into call signs. It's probably a U.S. thing. Um, but in, in, in Canada, that's just kind of a it, it's been a continuation. Most most of the call signs that I've that I've seen are generally a play on the person's last name. Right. Travis Brassington, Brass, Paul Frigo. Frig, right? Uh, Craig Ekstrom, Ecky, right? Um, Patrice LaRoche, Roach, right? So uh, in my particular case, uh, and, and the way the, the, the Air Force does the, the, the and, and now that's evolved in some of the other trades as well, and I think it's, it's a good thing. But um, the way it works in the Air Force and the fighter forces, you generally get your call sign assigned to you sometime through your fighter lead in training. Um, when I went, when I went to get, get mine, you have to remember I'd left the infantry. So I was going through my flight training and I was very still regimented as a soldier, right? So we'd be flying along my instructor, pretty chill. You know, you, you guys have seen all the fire pods around and, and he'd ask me to do something and I'd say, seen. And in the infantry, that means I've heard what you said. <laughs> I see what you're talking about and I know what you want me to do. Okay. It's a pretty simple, easy word to, for soldiers to, to communicate. And uh, particularly in the din of battle. And so um, I kept saying this and I was still, you know, prim and proper, you know, march salute, you know, all that kind of stuff. And to come to attention when I walked into the boss's office. And so what happened is this evolved and, uh, but I still had this very aggressive combat mentality. And um, so when I was going through fire leader and training, uh, you know, like I was the guy that wanted to tell everyone what a tank looked like and just, you know, what, which tank is this? And so, when they did it in Moose Jaw, there was about 50 other pilots in the room. And the process is they throw all the names up on the whiteboard and it's just, you know, they kick you out. They kick two of us out and we're out in the hallway. And so they're, you know, throwing names up there, like, you know, any name they come up with, just, you know, garbage nicknames. And then the first process is they just go through um, and start cutting them off, right? They, they, they take off the 30 names and they'll trim it down to about six. Then it's a all hands vote, right? You know, they'll say, uh, Timmy's is, is a recommended nickname and everyone puts their hands up and you know, it either gets cut off or, or struck, right? And then they get down to three and that's a single vote process. And so I don't know what my other names were in my case. And um, ultimately the, uh, it ended up with Ramble. They called us back in and you walk right in. They, they generally, there's, you know, some sort of a beverage involved. You take a knee in front of your course director and he pulls out a sword and he knights you as your call sign. Wow. Cool. Yeah. But my name was based on uh, just the coming out of the wow. army and just that kind of, uh, you know, combat arms mentality. That's good. Rambo's a good fitting name. So a lot of people don't, I mean, I just learned this when I became mayor that when you go to flight school, you may not necessarily get into Hornet. That's correct. Yeah. That, that is uh, maybe tell yeah. the listeners, how does that all work? Well, I, I, I just thought you could add when you put your name on the list to, to go to, to fly or be a pilot in the air force, you just tell them what you want to go fly. But no, the whole thing is very competitive. And, um, so you, you start off in uh, air crew selection and you get a bunch of hidden grades you never see. And they determine whether you can even be a pilot or a navigator or both or neither. Um, I was lucky enough to, to be selected for both, even though, um, I didn't understand some of the, the math and the questions. I just kind of, this makes sense. And I read out, um, ultimately you, you go through poor dodge. And if you pass that, that's the last part of the pilot selection, like air crew selection piece. And if you, you can fly a little bug smasher, like you were flying in Kevin, then you can now go on to your actual wings training in Moose Jaw. And when I f- did my wings training, it was in the uh, the Tudor. And I'd never been in a little jet. 
I'd never even been in a, you know, like anything that was really kind of a higher performance aircraft. So for me, the whole thing was, or it was like flying up, you know, they're letting me rip around this little Porsche thing. And, uh, I'd never done a loop. And so the first sort of, uh, introduction flight I did was with, uh, one of the high time tutor pilots. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've never done a loop before. I've never been airsick either. He said, oh, okay, we'll do a couple of loops for it. We did loops for about 30 minutes. I swear, I swear, I thought I was going to die. I said, I've had enough of this, right? Did you get sick? Uh, I got, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I puked so much. I think I puked up my, my, my breakfast from a week before. <laughs> but, uh, and then, and then that's where the selection occurs. And the way it generally works is they grade you on how you perform through each flight. And the, um, and generally the, the top three get to choose what they want to fly. Starting with the first guy, what do you want to fly? Invariably F-18s, right? Second guy would fly, I want to fly F-18s. Well, there's no more for your course. You get a T-bird. Third guy, I want to fly F-18s. Well, there's no more T-birds or Hornets. You're going to become a Moose Jaw instructor. And so those kind of worked out. And each course would have more F-18s or less F-18s. And some guys even want to just go fly transport or they want to fly helicopters. So they got their choice. In my case, I just happened to be lucky enough to to have a course and grade high enough that uh, I got my Hornet. Right on. And how many hours did you fly in on a Hornet? 2,400. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty high. That yeah, was good. You know what? It was uh, just a terrific, terrific career. I flew like two days before I retired. Here's a uh, question you're probably not expecting, but... What, you know, why, why don't we have a base over in, in Germany? I mean, you know, our sister city over there in Hulesheim, yeah. you know, we walked away from, from that base, uh, all yeah. the bases over in Europe. Like, why yeah. don't we consider going back and, and, and having a, a small group of planes over there uh, and having yeah. a presence? Cause we go over there so much to fly anyways. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's a, a point where Canon might consider it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you simply reason why we don't have fighters over there anymore is because of the cold war. And we won it, right? So there was no requirement to have such large masses of forces left in Europe. And it was about uh, Canada's, I think, decisions were to to cap uh, to capitalize on the peace dividend of that war ending. So that's what the withdrawal, why that withdrawal occurred. And again, those are political decisions. Um, the U.S. has maintained a large footprint over there um, in Aviano, all through Spingdatum and all up and through England as well, where we have allies. It's the ability with the current application of our ability to apply air combat power is we can get there in, you know, in a in matter of days, which is most people don't realize that Canada's fighter force are her really only high readiness forces. There's, you know, there's JTF too, but even they take a few days to get in where, you know, we have, we have air crew right now on minutes notice to fly to defend Canada. Um, and they can literally be in Europe in a matter of days. Uh, um, whereas it takes the armies, you know, months to, to work up and deploy into theater. And I, I, if I understand it correctly too, I think a lot of that international in that Europe area, there's, it's the NATO under the yeah. different, uh, yeah. flag of a joint, uh, a joint yeah. structure, right? Of yeah. that presence. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the, 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 yeah. the pilots really have three missions. And one of the, the, you know, the main mission is NORAD, of course, but um, expeditionary operations under a NATO or a allied or coalition uh, command structure. And so NATO is critically important to the defense of Canada and our allies. One of the neat things about being on Coley Council, of course, is Four Wing. And uh, they're part of our community. And, uh, you know, we get to do some neat things over there. Oh, and yeah. one of the We've got a great relationship no. with the uh, with the wing and uh, and the wing commander. Uh, you know, every two to three years, there is a change out. And each one is very unique when they come to the table. Uh, um, highly trained and, and and different approaches to all of them. It's it's mm. fascinating the mm. uh, the 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 wealth of knowledge that comes through that uh, yeah. through the base. Yeah. yeah, one of the coolest things we've ever done was uh, as a council we got to go in an air refueler and uh, those that right. can make it yeah. and went down uh, and up in the air. And uh, I know Kevin took some amazing pictures uh, of the planes. Now this <laughs> refueling thing, this looks. Like, uh, this could be a pretty difficult maneuver when you bring your, your nose, your plane up in the sky to try to suck in some jet fuel. Yeah. Is it, is it as hard as it looks? Um, depends. <laughs> depends. It depends on, you know, weather, night, cloud, 
what tanker you're going off yeah, of, how, totally, per, yeah. how current you are, you know. Um, so just to, I'll give I'll give you a story. So first combat mission, right? Yeah, first night strike, yeah, going driving down the Adriatic, trying to t- tie up with a KC-135. There were six of us. Um, only two of us made it through the tanker. So, uh, two stories on it. One is the, uh, there's, there's a longer story, but I'll leave it at this is that when I got behind that thing, my briefing before I'd gone down, I said, I didn't even know what the airplane looked like. And the briefing was simply just put the thing in the thing and don't <laughs> F it up. So <laughs> to, to say the least, I survived and it was literally, there's paintings in our museum of that operation. And there's one painting that's dedicated to that specific mission. Uh, so each plane is different with that nose or whatever it is that, that we hook up your plane to that, that uh, thing that flies. The probe. Yeah. yeah the probe. Now, every, from what I understand, everybody's got a different kind of probe. We have a, no, we have different techniques. The probe's all the same. On there. E- aircraft are different, right? They have these air, each fighter aircraft have different probes, uh, set up. And, you know, the USAF use a, 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 a uh, we use probe and drogue and whereas they have like a boom effect where they actually have the tanker push their probe into the airplane, which no God-fearing fighter pilot will ever accept. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but ultimately each fighter pilot has different techniques and I can show you on when I, when I, when I tank, I have the hose straight up in an S where a lot of the guys will f- flop it out to the right side. Some guys later across the nose, but what I learned, what I learned that night was you can't flop it across your nose at night because the light that illuminates the belly of the tanker, you can't see the tanker. All you see is this black tube right in front of you. <laughs> so you have no references. And how high in the air are you flying? Like uh, during tanking? Yeah. Um, LD again, depends. It could be anywhere from 15,000 to say 25,000 depends on the tanker and how, how heavy your bombs are. And how do you so. practice something like that in a classroom? Like how, what do you, like how do you practice fueling up? Uh, I mean, well, this is, this is crazy. I mean, how do you practice that on the ground? They'll show you a video. They'll, they'll go up the, as, in, as an instructor at 410 and the instructors at 410, you know, they'll understand is that they've got to actually demonstrate because the whole thing about being an instructor is explain what you have to do and then demonstrate it. So the instructor is sitting six feet behind the student and he's got a tank and he's, it's like, it's like basically you're jousting that this thing, you know, eight, 18 feet in front of you. So just so the student can sort of see a sight picture. And then, then the students get to practice it as long as they don't break the airplane, which sometimes happens or tear the boom off or, or tear the basket off, which has happened. The, the techs that are fixing these planes, these F-18s have been up in the air for so long. I mean, that, yeah. that speaks to the, the workmanship in Canada. Yeah. You know, our techs are, are just terrific. I mean, I, you know, if, if a plane was having problems and there was a history in the books, I would go up to the guys, you know, because ultimately they know way more about the guts of that airplane than, than the pilots will. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I'd look at them and say, is it safe? And if they said yes, I would take it without reservation. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't fly the same plane, right? No. Nope. You, you, nope. you, uh, even though you might have your name on a plane, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you're going to fly that every day. That's right. So it's probably even more, more so today, even though your name is on the aircraft, that's, that's just kind of like the throwback to the Second World War thing again. But um, there's a fleet of aircraft and because of the maintenance cycles, you know, you might have a UE of 12 aircraft on the squadron and they'll rotate them through maintenance. And some maintenance is a month long, some maintenance is a three years long, some maintenance might be a little bit longer, but that's what the area officers, the aerospace engineering officers, they manage the fleet's fatigue rates and all the parts that need to be swapped out. And um, so it's not uncommon to, you know, jump into, you, you'll fly basically every aircraft in the squadron while you're there. Um, but yeah, no, they, the, they're having, they're having more difficulties now because the aircraft was supposed to be retired in 2013. Um, but because of the procurement process and decisions by the federal government, we are now extending the life of the aircraft to 2032 which is 19 years longer uh, than it should be flying. So there, there are some, some maintenance challenges that they're dealing with right now. And I believe the procurement of the Australian F-18s was meant to offset some of those. So now we, we, you know, you know a lot, I'm sure that you probably can't say everything, but 
certainly uh, Canada is looking at replacing the fighter jet with right now. I think it's down to three three planes. Mm-hmm. This is going to be uh, you know let's speak about the developments on four wing. This is going to be a big huge uh, construction. Uh, it's going to create a lot of jobs in in, in our area. Um, you know uh, why? Uh, for those that never been out to Cold Lake, we have a lot of old hangars out there, and they're all gonna, they're going to be knocked down. Why why would why would we want to be knocking down all these hangars? Well, because they're old. They're they're constructed in the 50s. They're pushing 70 years old. Um, they've been maintained really well as best they can, but they're heated by steam. Um, you know, they do have asbestos in them, but they're, they're worked really hard. So as a result, they experience fatigue as well. They, you know, components rust. Um, when I was a DCO 49, we had a, a panel fall from the roof and just missed an aircraft. So the aircraft, the, the, the hangars already need a, a significant uh refurbishment like a basically a tear down to the bones and rebuild or they need to um uh you know tear them down and make new ones now the new aircraft the big thing about the new aircraft is that it uh and just for everybody who's listening on the podcast i'm an f-35 guy and i can tell you that you know for a number of reasons it uh it's the only aircraft that is going to be supported by the u.s for 40 years and the reason why we're having difficulties with the current F-18 fleet is that they aren't building parts anymore. So if you ask, if you want to ask yourself uh, something, how many people do you know are driving trucks and cars from 1983? And you want to be driving a car that's 40 years old as well. Well, that's what the, what, that's what these fighters are being expected to do. Now, this air, this aircraft is um, going to be supported by the U.S., because they're going to fly it as the largest fleet. So we'll always have access to parts that are being produced at reasonable prices. When the aircraft, the F-18 was being, is under production and they were going through all the, all their builds, we could get a, a component for a hundred dollars. Well, those components haven't been made now for a couple of decades. So sourcing them is difficult. And now the price could be $10,000. Or it has to be manufactured specifically. Or it has to be manufactured for that piece. Them, right? Made, yeah. that, that's right. Yeah. So, so I'm an F-35 guy. Now, what that means is that um, with the advent of things like the internet, the digital electronic operating environment, that security and the, um, I guess, the vulnerabilities of this aircraft, right, need to be protected just as the highest, highest levels. Um, and so that requires physical infrastructure like hangars or hangarettes that will allow you to uh, protect it um, and give you as much flexibility as you, as you need to conduct your training, your operations and your maintenance. We understand that this possibility it might be one plane per hangar. Is that, is that, or are you hearing uh, different? Um, I don't know if I can actually okay. go into a lot of details like that. All right, that. the mayor says one plane per hangar. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, overall, uh, the procurement process, uh, of course, the, 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 the right now in terms of the public facing of this is, is that the government of Canada is reviewing the bid submissions by mm-hmm. the uh, mm-hmm. um, manufacturers, Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing for That's the correct. Super Hornet, and then with the Saab uh, Gripen That's correct. Um, aircraft. So once that process is uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, finalized and there's an airplane selected, of course, the whole planning, we understand that there's a, a major planning exercise going on both on base um, uh, CFB Cold Lake, uh, and probably the others that are going to host uh, the planes, but, uh, specifically, cause we want to talk about our community is, is that, um, the planning exercise includes the hangar c- uh, conversation and also a whole bunch of expansion to kind of the support, um, facilities and buildings that are there. And in fact, recently there's been a, uh, announcement that, uh, Alice Dawn has been awarded a, uh, contract out at the uh, wing. So this is a very, uh, positive time for the community because it's 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 signaling that uh there's going to be some tremendous investment going into the uh into the into the wing and uh, that's going to come with jobs and uh you know the sub trades that are going to be under there i think Mm -hmm. this is very positive in 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 the ramp up to uh for the new Mm -hmm. planes that are going to come you know rambo i think a lot of people that may not be aware but how unique is the air weapons range for It, it doesn't exist anywhere else in canada and it is such an important asset to Canada, it's, it's con- considered a, um, a geopolitical strategic asset for Canada because the Allies want to train here. The U.S. want to conduct training and testing evaluation here. Um, if I was to, I did studies on this before I left the military, that there's only a handful of what we call major test and training ranges worldwide. They were, uh, they were 
capable of, of supporting true large force employment of, of air power in a in a very dynamic, uh, high threat or very hostile, uh, you know, opposed, um, you know, scenario. And so those ranges were basically, there's one in Australia, there's a couple in the States and can't in Canada, you can't conduct the same type of training over land in Europe. It, it's impossible. Yeah. I think I've seen, we've seen presentations with the, the air weapons range, yeah, uh, same scale right. overlapped in Europe. And that's, that's, right. that's quite a mass, right? right. Yeah, yeah, several, yeah. several countries there. You're yeah. about 40 kilometers north of Kohl The range? Yeah. Well, it's in the F-18, it's about five minute flight. So five uh, minute flight. To get to about south boundary. <laughs> and then you have about, what, an uh, hour uh, and a half of flight of gas to play around in the range? Come, it depends. That's oh, my depends. question. <laughs> <in a second. laughs> you, 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 depends you, how fast you're going. Yeah, exactly. And how much gas you're carrying. But but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the the evolution of this new fighter. There's going to be a new, there's going to be a future fighter capability in Canada. That's a given, right? It's uh, going to consist of 88 aircraft. Um, those, that bid process is being evaluated right now. The, the important part to take away is that the economic benefits to Canada is a huge part of that process. So when the bids went in, each of these companies had to um, identify ways that the Canadian economy would benefit. They have a thing called uh, ITBs. Um, they are I can't, the, the, the actual industrial technological benefits. And so when, when one of these countries generally make an investment uh, or, or do the build, if the money is not being spent right in Canada, they have to offset it with these ITBs. And um, with the exception of the F-35, because Canada has been already contributing into the F-35 since its initial development, Gosh, 20 years ago, 18 wow. years ago, like like hundreds of millions of dollars. So if Canada wants to walk away from probably what's going to be one of the greatest single engine fires that man has ever known, that would be just a complete loss. But the important the important thing to take away is that the uh, the the growth that's going to happen at this range is going to be not only with the aircraft, it's going to involve dual fleets. So the F-18 will continue to fly as the F-35 is being brought in. So there's more people. You're going to see construction evolved around or revolving around the um, the delivery of operational training infrastructure, which includes things like secure briefing facilities, which also have an operational component. Uh, things that are going to have to be modernized on the air weapons range because the aircraft is, if they, if they pick the one that I want them to get, is so so capable that the um, the range has to be modernized as well, which means that there's all sorts of opportunity regionally, not just for the city, but regionally there's there's going to be opportunity. And um, so one of the things that we this is one of the reasons why I became on to council because I knew that this this tidal wave was coming this direction. So I wanted to try and prepare the community as best I could to be ready for these government type contracts. So that's, um, I wanted to evolve the, the communities or diversify the economy beyond just military and oil and gas and bring it into the aerospace and defense sector a little bit, right? And just get people ready to, to be prepared to, to bid on contracts or, or, or partner with primes who needed subcontractors to do the work. And so we, under the Economic Development Advisory Committee, um, myself, Council of Fabe, uh, Bernardo Fabe, and, and that group of folks and uh, Community Futures uh, started these training sessions to teach people how to do this. And we're starting to see some of those returns now, right? I know uh, NAILS is, they have a facility security clearance. They can actually now bid to secret level contracts which yeah. is wonderful because now we're we're capturing some of those big dollars that are coming from the feds to evolve the the base there are more opportunities coming like a host of them that range everything everywhere from just supplying office uh, supplies right up to um conducting, you know, maintenance on, on the air weapons range. You know, I mean, I, I think I just saw a contract go out for some goats to get, keep the grass down in areas that's too hard to cut with whippersnippers. And hey, all these little things are just like, it's coming. And we've prepared the community really as best we can. 
but that interest is still there. I think that training has been uh, has been great. Uh, seeing it, it's uh, actually hosted a number of courses and almost like a full day event. Seminars, yeah, yeah, seminars of, of you know how how to first to screen, you know, become a contractor of the federal government yep. to be able to bid because you have to go through some security and you got to qualify first yep. and kind of be on a list. Yep. And then uh, after that, then you go through the procurement process of uh, being able to put in the bids and any of the bonding that's required or uh, anything of the financial components of it. So yep. uh, it's been, uh, I, I think they've been very positive comments mm-hmm. from the community and, and, and the region with regard yep. to that understanding and knowledge. Yep. I, uh, I think council hosted, uh, you know, some dollars in, or, and, uh, in order to um, get speakers to that yep. matter. Uh, some of them are uh, that we had to bring in. Um, their costs and uh, including uh, we had people from actually the wing itself to come and yep. speak as well. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that interaction with the wing is supported by the wing commander. He, uh, he actually has now assigned somebody to the economic development advisory committee, which has been just a terrific uh, addition to the, to the team. And um, you know, the, the last seminar we were going to conduct was in August. We're going to conduct it in August. I think that was the date or is April. I can't remember now, but obviously COVID-19 put that on hold. So, all that training is basically gone to webinar based online. If anyone's really interested in that type of training, I, I encourage you to go online on the, uh, the Colic City website uh, or contact um, the Chamber of Commerce or Community Futures and you'll get you'll, you'll see some of these webinars. The first thing you really need to get most of you have business numbers. One of the first things you need to do is get what's called a PBN, a procurement business number. And this, this type of training applies not only to federal contracts, but provincial contracts. And I would in, you know, suspect that it probably flows over into the municipal contracting process somehow. That the, this, the processes are all very linked together. So if you're prepared to do one, you're likely prepared to do another. Yeah, the session they did last week, I, I sat in on it for an hour. I mean, yeah. if you wanted to bid on government work, that was a great session. It was yeah. well done. Yeah. It tells uh, you how to do it. The, the people from the federal government and the provincial it's, did it's a great a, job. It's an education process, but, uh, but also we help set the people up. Uh, or these these businesses who want to move the the stakes forward by providing them some person on person assistance. Now, in ter- in terms of understanding the the scope and value for the community, um, in previous briefings that I've received, uh, my understanding from uh, the ministry is that uh, the investment to the uh, CFB Code Lake in, is in the realms of uh, half a billion dollars of uh, of investment. Right? It's uh, it's it's substantial. So I um, that is a public number. My uh, from the brief that we received from the uh, ministry, but uh, we're talking substantial, but that's outside of the uh, investment from, you know, any the aircraft. aircraft itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and probably there is other pieces to this, such as the air, that doesn't include any upgrades to the air weapons range uh, that's going to happen. So yeah. we're talking uh, a pretty substantial, yeah, uh, there should be uh, yeah, some the, the new next, families moving to Cole yeah, Lake. Yeah. Uh, as 10 the years, uh, over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. it's, there is a significant yeah. investment of, uh, of infrastructure to, uh, to yeah. this. Definitely. And, um, you know, again, I can't, I can't give the number, but you may have had a conversation with the wing commander where he told you roughly how many um, potential families. Yeah. We're looking at potentially, I think the vision is over the next five to 10 years that there's going to be a lift of uh, new, new personnel. It's really exciting because there's going to be some new programs. And I I just think that we've, we've really talked about in the media lately is uh, we feel that uh, Coal Lake is just on the verge of uh, forming a bottom here economically and that uh, we're going to come out of this thing in a, in a, you know, in a good position is because of all of the federal money that's going to be plowed finally Mm -hmm. into the air force. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it's a half a billion or or what, uh, the fact is you need to replace these fighter jets. We should have done a long time ago. Uh, It's about time we, we get to it now. Um, You know, like you said, hopefully, hopefully the politicians won't pick the plane. The, uh, the the men and women that fly the planes uh, pick the plane. The uh, but you know whether it's a half a billion. But I know that uh, roughly speaking, about five hundred at least you know at least five hundred to people, yeah, possibly with families. Exactly. When you sort yep. of times that by three, you know you're looking at at least fifteen hundred people coming into Coal Lake. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most of them always live in the city. If the, mm-hmm. if the PMQs are full, then they're going to be, li- you know, living in the community, which is great. And it's going to sort of build up on the housing. You're starting to see in Coal Lake, uh, you know, a general uh, 
leveling off on the housing now and you're starting to see some some uh, increase maybe in, in prices on the on the old on on unused houses you're starting to see some uh, new housing start so you know things i'm optimistic i think outside of that too is uh, beyond uh, of course uh, on city council agenda has been the uh, um there's been an economic development initiative that uh, the city of cold lake is under of course a lot of that is in camera because we're working with uh, under non-disclosure agreements in some of those areas but uh, i think for the community outside of those investments and, and the mm-hmm. conversation we're having there's even more still to come with regard to mm-hmm. uh, um, kind of uh, aerospace yeah. uh, economic development for the community. Yep. So I, I think uh, the community should be very positive that it's in a good and poised in a good mm-hmm. position yep. for uh, uh, a strong economic uh, future as, as we go forward. Yeah, we're certainly not hanging our head just on the fighter piece. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've discussed this at length and have, take, have other opportunities that are being developed, which are very exciting. They've garnered interest at the provincial level. And um, so that that's one to to sit on the yeah, other seat yeah. and listen listen for. Premier has got a briefing on it. He was interested, yep, and yep. Uh, right. And uh, there seems to be some. Uh, when when yep. we run our council, we 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 try to do a broad stroke and and try to get everybody involved. And I and I think a couple of years ago, you know, one of the big initiatives that uh, you brought to the table was the regional airport. Mm-hmm. And I don't think uh, myself and some of the other councillors may not have appreciated uh, that asset uh, mm-hmm. as as well as we could. Of, and certainly uh, we've done a lot of great work over there. Oh, you know what? That, that little airfield is is one of the sort of untapped um, potentials for this community. And, and the work that the, the council's done on in that area, you know, uh, is, is really setting up for success. And I'll give you an example. Um, one of the... On the, on the wing, for example, there are capabilities coming to the wing. Um, this is, this is open source. The uh, remotely piloted aircraft system, the RPAS, is likely going to be using Cold Lake as a, as a Western operating base of some form, right? Largely because of its, uh, of its ability to have access to the air weapons range. And it's likely going to be having to fire, you know, missiles and things like that. So our pass stands for remotely piloted, piloted aircraft. System. So drones is another drones word, right? UAVs. Yep. Yep. UAVs. Yep. So uh, with within the the national construct, everyone's seeing UAVs uh, evolve as well. So there's a lot of commercial opportunity developing, not only nationally but globally, that um, Cole can capitalize on. That could be anywhere, anything from an, a UAV pilot school that could be a a helicopter uh you know company operating from the air weapons range it could be um you know something that the base needs that they can deliver without having to go through the capital procurement process so facilities security um and uh you know the 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 for example advanced target sets Advanced target systems may need small runways to take off from well. They the military may not want to operate from there, or they just may need a large hangar space to operate from to go up on the air weapons range to operate. So the, the improvements we did over at the regional airport for those is we did some taxiways. Yep. Those were uh, paved and, uh, and not only were they just paved, the existing one uh, um, kind of a strategy was put into place to, to pave them in a, in a way that expands uh, opportunities yeah. for growth for leased areas and, and more hangars to be mm-hmm. able to be developed yeah. at the uh, terminal, including uh, not uh, just not just uh, mom and pops areas, uh, but uh, the commercial areas as well for yeah. opportunities such as businesses uh, mm-hmm. to, to exist out there. Yep. And mm-hmm. that, that air, airstrip can be extended to the east. Oh, correct? We own a couple yeah. quarter sections to the east. So um, there's yeah. there's a, a, a big potential to be able to expand to the east. And uh, right now that runway sits at 3,000 feet. We just confirmed that a little while ago. 3,005. Uh, 3,005, yep. And 75 feet uh, wide. Um, <laughs> the uh, But we can uh, get that thing to uh, 5,000, 6,000 feet. Uh, yeah. And what would uh, you just, need for, to, say, land a small commercial uh, plane that might fly from Calgary to uh, Coal Lake uh, for passengers? You could, you know, there's, again, different aircraft, yeah. right? But just to let you know, the, the minimum number I used when I flew the F-18 that all our pods are told is 5,000 feet. 
So if I can land an F-18 on 5,000 feet, you can pretty much land a 737 on it as well. Really? Yeah. 5,000 yeah. feet. So 1,500 more feet or no, 2,000 more we feet. We just need a little bit more yeah. width on that runway too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it needs to be a bit wider. We need a little wider yeah. as well. We'll be yeah. knocking trees down, but it's not, not that big. But, but, there are, but the, a 737 is, is, a, is a larger aircraft. But you're, what, you're, what you really need to think about is going after the 19 seat. Uh, mm-hmm. Capacity aircraft, yeah. You know the dashes, yeah. Yeah. You know uh, larger King Airs, yeah. You know, these sorts. Because you know of when stuff. you look at what's going to happen here on the wing, mm-hmm. all the construction, and then the oil yeah. patch is going to turn. I mean, someday those pipelines will be and ready. Get that commercial ready air service uh, to a place mm-hmm. where it's ready yeah. to, to stand up. One of the other big big changes that that Kevin didn't mention was the uh, recent um, delivery of a, a GPS approach to our, our regional aerodrome, um, that now opens up that field to, for anyone to fly into it in all weather conditions, largely, you know, to non, non-prison limits right now, but ultimately now we can actually have a scheduled service if we decide to go in that direction. Yeah. Um, but again, I mean, there's some conversations that are still ongoing, so hopefully they'll move along a little bit faster because we've been wanting to have a, a inner terminal or sorry, an air service in Coal Lake since 2011 yeah. when I was doing Opsol. Yeah, landing at the, on the base. For yeah, those the, that are uh, the, uh, the users that are out there are speaking with them. They've been really happy with the uh, GPS installing the, uh, the the new taxiways that are no, no longer grassways and dirt. Uh, it's, yeah. They're paved. Um, you know, the, the the actual runway a few years ago was overlaid. And then uh, we also had uh, Pappies uh, mm-hmm. installed. Yep. Uh, I guess yep. uh, explain Pappies uh, that they're really impressed with that to help uh, yep. the so, non-precision. So Pappies yeah. just a... Call sign from uh, that more Happy Boyington. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's different names. Papa was as in dad, like Papa. What's it called? Baba Black Sheep. Baba Black Sheep. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the real quick on the Pappy. Pappy is just a, uh, a glide slope aid for a pilot, so visual aid. Um, but, you know, ultimately what's happening now is that there's a growing awareness of the Colic Regional Aerodrome amongst general aviation. So there was a lot of aircraft flying on the weekend, beautiful day. So what that does, that brings more awareness provincially um, to people like Black Labish has their, their winter fly. And so there are opportunities, you know, you're starting to see benefits, I think, within the community as it evolves. But I, for me personally, the greatest addition to the uh, regional aerodrome was the access to the commercial lease space or yeah. the, commercial, the commercial growth space. Because now when a large company comes in, when the future fighter is dropped or the infrastructure program is is uh, developed over the next two to three years, we now have a spot as a city to say, yeah, you can go here or, you know, there are some other land developers that, that have land as well. So we've created the environment for success, not for, not only for the city, but our businesses. If by extending the runway by a couple thousand feet, that would also allow these companies to fly their own jets in yeah, and, and come visit the wing yeah. rather than flying yeah. necessarily on the wing. Mostly what will happen is that uh, if, if they're going directly for the wing for wing work, they'll they'll get a PPR and they'll pop in there. Um, it's really more to do with mm-hmm. the, the um, non-defense related uh, visits that are going to be required mm-hmm. both for industry, the aerospace and defense sector as it grows, right? Shipping, you know, flying parts in because right now we don't have no way to fly airlift a you know a a quick part in for someone who might need it. Well, let's talk about a different subject. Yeah, um, uh, there was a we, uh, little while ago, Council uh, uh, Soroka Rambo here put forth to council a, a notice of motion with regard to the uh, amendments. Uh, of uh, the criminal code um, regarding mm. gun restrictions. And mm. uh, um, that passed uh, in council uh, uh, in terms of uh, lobbying the federal government regarding that uh, amendments. Uh, Kirk, did you want to go into that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Explain the criminal code amendment. And uh, and I think uh, I think it said it's uh, letters uh, under the motion that uh, gave guidance to administration. We sent uh, letters to um, all municipalities in Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan. And uh, boy, there's been uh, letters that have been uh, given actually beyond 
beyond just the formal letters, I, I think uh, Andrew uh, kind of talked about before the meeting, uh, we had 41 formal letters of support given out to uh, um, mm. and sent to the federal government in this. But there, there has been a ton of phone calls that have been given in mm. and uh, to of support as well as, uh, you know, on social media. We've also been getting comments from municipalities all across Canada mm. with regard to this, uh, yeah, this thing. You know, one of the common threads was people didn't even know this was going on. Mm. I mean, so how did you first find out this was what the feds want were going, you know, for our government, uh, liberal government was going this way? Um, you know, I, I, for me, like uh, one thing I didn't tell you, when I transitioned from the infantry to become a, a pilot, um, I didn't have, I, I didn't even have a high school graduation. So I had to go through the military academy, Royal Roads Military College. My degree was in politics and economics. So that's why I became, that, that was one reason why I was kind of interested in doing the politics thing. Um, but really, it's really, I always called it my newspaper reading degree because I read a lot. I'm always trying to, I don't like to read just from one source. Right. So because you'll get a single narrative and a single story. I read all the all the sources about the same story. Yeah. And so I develop a picture. Right. And so I stumbled, stumbled across this and there was a, obviously um, some inputs about disorder and counsel. Um, there was positives, there was negatives. And I began to quickly realize that the positives were from people who were ill-informed. Um, you know, this is a, it was a, a liberal campaign platform that they're trying to action. And they've been trying to action it since the eighties from when they had the long gun registry, which was a dismal failure that cost Canadians billions vice the 2 million that they said it would cost. And so in this particular case, having lived through the original one in the eighties and lost guns, then I just felt that, um, Coal Lakes council, the administration, the community in general, um, we needed to show some leadership as a small community. And, and Colic has always punched well above its weight. And I thought that, you know, I, I want to bring this to my my peers at council and 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 basically put the motion forward. So now, what did the Liberal government do if we can go into the details of, of what they did with this criminal code amendment? Yeah. So what they did uh, is they essentially uh, made a without based on science or fact is they made a, a one sided decision to ban and they continue to add uh, firearms, differing firearms to this list of about 1500 firearms that includes everything from uh, large bore shotguns to high, uh, high energy or high kilojoule um, ammunition uh, capable weapons. Uh, to missile launchers, machine guns, things that Canadians haven't been allowed to have for over 40, for four decades, right? If not even longer. And, um, and so they're, they're basing it all on a, uh, on, on a, a look primarily, they say, they kept seeing the, the assault rifle, the AR-15, that's the body style. Well, most people don't, most of the people that they're, 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 they're aiming their one-sided conversation are people don't even understand how a firearm functions, right? Whether it's magazine fed or not magazine fed, Canada has some of the most um, uh, comprehensive firearm regulations out there. Uh, they are, they have been highly successful. None of these 1500 firearms uh, that they've named have been involved in any you know, criminal activity, uh, law-abiding citizens are there, are the ones being targeted. And so ultimately um, what we're seeing is the, it's, it's really just a, a political move to make it look like the, the current federal government is doing something about gun crime. When in fact, they're, they're, they're not, they're not thinking this through properly. The law-abiding citizens are not the problem. The problem are the criminal gangs uh, the smuggling of firearms across the U.S. border and uh, the inability or the lack of funding that police forces have to conduct proper intelligence-based, effects-based operations, which is the way we always in the military were trained to, to do business. You find out where your threat is, you find out how it's organized, where it's located, how it's uh, conducting business. Then you you come up with a strategy and then you come in in one fell swoop and you do it. Now, 
this four to six hundred million dollars that the liberals are saying um, will will pay off the, the you know the gun grab because that's essentially what it is. It's not going to solve gun crime. Um, is is basically another a uh, underestimation. Uh, you know, it could potentially be you know one to two billion dollars of money to take away your your fellow neighbors and citizens property without any uh, right of appeal. And so, um, you know, I, I just take, take serious issue with that. That's, that's the signs of a tyrannical government. It's a sport in Canada. It's the, these, these firearms are not the problem. They're a tool. Um, and really the, the people that are using these firearms, they, you know, they're, they're the most heavily vetted group of part of the population. And, um, you know, they're not the threat. The threat is largely pistols in Toronto that have been smuggled and they're already, these guys carrying these firearms are already breaking our laws and, and there's nothing the police are, or the police are struggling to, to, to keep ahead of it. But we don't have, um, you know, a problem with, at least we're in my communities is it was with these types of farms where they're, they're not a regular, regular. No, they're not the firearm of choice by the bad guys. No, they're not. They're, they, you know, these are rifles. So I don't know there, there's, to me, there's just no real value added, but let me come back to, uh, to a couple points, the effects-based operations. We need to support, uh, you know, the gathering of intelligence between communities, develop that picture. We need to make sure that our police aren't defunded. We need to make sure they're properly funded and properly manned such that they can actually conduct their operations without, you know, having so many files they can't even get out of the office sometimes. And, um, and then we need to basically harden the border a little bit such that uh, the smuggling is, is halted. And, uh, and then when we do catch somebody that is using a, a firearm or a pistol that has been modified, that has been, uh, you know, it's stolen or whatever, that they, they are subject to some of the harshest penalties that we, we have to offer. You know, and I take issue with with the the way that this particular order and council came about. And, and, and if I was a bad guy right now, I'd be cheering the liberals on. Be going, yeah, take all their guns. It just makes my job safer. This is just a big miss, in my view. You're starting to see the groundswell support. We sent this out. I put this order and this motion forward um, for consideration. And once it was passed, part of the motion was that it be sent to all the municipalities in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And so that was a big job for, for Kevin's uh, staff. And at the end of the day, uh, we're now, I guess, I guess the, uh, the podcast kind of went, or sorry, the, um, uh, when that was put on something on your website, what's yep. it called? Yeah. Our social media. Social media. Yeah, I guess yeah, it started yeah. getting a whole bunch of hits. Yep. Facebook or uh, Twitter. Yep. Started going crazy or something. Yeah. So I yeah. knew right then and there. The highest hits we ever had. Yeah. I think it was our biggest uptake in terms of the timelines uh, all across Canada. So, so this is a, so this is, there's a, a, a groundswell support, the 41 letters you talked about, the smaller communities, the smaller villages and things like that who don't have the, you know, the administrative horsepower that the, that Cole Lake are, are telling Cole Lake, thank you for taking leadership on this. And um, so it's, I guess it's, you, you yeah, we're trying to, and then uh, also uh, uh, based on uh, council direction, uh, you wanted to see uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, FCM to, uh, because you've seen so much support uh, from, from these provinces and municipalities, um, you would like to see a vote at the FCM to lobby the FCM lobby, the uh, federal mm -hmm. government with mm -hmm. regard to this order and council as well. Mm -hmm. um, and let it put to a vote to all of these municipalities and mm -hmm. say, you know, and if it succeeds, say to the to the federal government, uh, mm -hmm. listen, none of your municipalities are on board with this thing or, mm -hmm. or very few. Um, so uh, yeah. can we do something about this? Because I think you're, you're the one of the when I heard council debate, the issue was was the frustration uh, and you mentioned it is, is this, will this uh, 200 million or these hundreds of millions of dollars turned up to be a billion to $2 billion uh, for what? Is that in order to, to reduce crime? Yeah. yeah, yeah. In order to reduce crime, should, is that money best better spent mm -hmm. in in crime reduction initiatives directly rather than just the taking the guns away? Well, it's really like I mean, uh, what I've read through, I've read through every single letter that we've been sent, and I'm and, and some of the comments that have come from the other other towns and villages and cities 
in other municipalities is that, you know, beyond gathering intelligence, funding our police to basically deal with this properly, hardening the border such that we're dealing with the smuggling, you know, the, you know, the change in the um, penalties associated with gun related crimes. Uh, they're talking about where's the mental uh, health support associated because most of the folks People say, well, people are killing themselves with their guns. Well, you take their guns away, they're just going to hang themselves, right? Um, you know, we want to help those people, not, we want them to get well. And, uh, um, you know, and like I said, the, a firearm is, it, you know, it's, it's not the problem. It's the person that's, that has that firearm that we need to sort of nip them in the bud. And that's where that, that money, if, if the, the liberals are serious about spending, you know, hundreds of millions of taxpayers dollars, then they should use effects based strategies and science because none of these firearms in Canada, they, they've been involved in zero crime from law abiding citizens. They might've been stolen, but that has nothing to do. And once they're stolen, they're now they're gone. Right. So. I think some of the discussions also got a little bit more um, maybe selfish for city council, more that uh, the federal government owes the city of Cold Lake $23 million mm-hmm. in outstanding yeah. uh, uh, taxes, uh, yeah. t- uh, pill to payment in lieu of taxes to the community mm-hmm. um, as they have not been paying their bills. And yeah. uh, and so it became a little bit more selfish in that way. If you're going to spend yeah. that kind of money on that, why don't they pay their bills, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I think this is your standard political <laughs> move based on, uninformed, on an uninformed electorate any motion, right? And uh, so I've watched some, you know, uh, some done some reading. They don't even understand an assault, what an assault rifle is. To be truthful, there's no legal definition of an assault rifle. Canadian public has not been allowed to have automatic weapons uh, in four decades. So th- an assault rifle is, is, is a, a misnomer. And uh, most people can't even describe calibers. That, and these are the people that are voting. I want to help them understand that the people that have these rifles are trained, regulated, licensed, and regularly checked. They are not the problem. The problem are the, are the, the guys. I, I'll give you, I, I was watching a, a news story uh, out of Toronto, and it was a, a large group of, uh, I don't know, probably late teenage to, uh, you know, mid young 20s guys just kind of hanging around a store in a parking lot. A car rolled by. You saw two flashes out of the window. Five of these guys pulled up pistols and started shooting back. The number of federal crimes that occurred in that video, right, are off the scale. You would never see a law-abiding citizen be involved in any of that. No, I think uh, I think we got a lot of support across Western Canada, and I think across Canada. I think this is uh, hopefully gets brought to the table at FCM uh, conference in uh, the spring of next year, and I, I think this is going to be widely accepted. I, when people really dive into it, um, this is what the residents want uh, a counselor to bring forward. And you know, kudos to you, Kirk, for uh, for bringing this uh, forward. Uh, you caught it, and you did the process. You know, bring it to council. We debated and. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch uh, this going forward, and I think it's also um, the media has also uh, been writing about this story too. Is that this is this really going to be yep. effective? Well, and, and I think yep. the uh, important part was is that uh, also was roles of the municipalities, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, the conversation was in Alberta the, under the Municipal Government Act. Uh, um, part of council's role is providing uh, safe and healthy communities, right? And, um, and and making those decisions. And and you guys are doing the budget um, for how much police forces that are out there. And so when you start seeing these types of, of uh, uh, you know, actions being taken upon the federal government is drawing the concern mm-hmm. of, you know, where does that line cross? Because you're trying to be charged with doing, you know, working with the RCMPs or in some jurisdiction, mm-hmm. they have their own police forces, municipal police forces, provincial police forces across Canada, but the municipalities are, are working with their police forces in order to set priorities for their communities on the various uh, and maybe specialized crimes or specific issues that their own communities are having. And uh, so you're here, it, it uh, provides a little bit more, um, you know, turmoil to that. I'd rather see them, uh, you know, look at our community and like communities across Alberta right now is struggling with addictions and mental health. Mm-hmm. It's like if they want to throw some money around here, like you said earlier, let's let's address some of the issues uh, with some of the people creating the crimes. Uh, gangs is a different story, but mm-hmm. certainly, uh, you know, in, in our community, we, we've we've got a we've got a drug problem, yep. and you know, let's let's deal with uh, with the the ability to to get to drugs so easily. Mm-hmm. 
but also the issues that it's causing amongst uh, some people in our community and that are causing are doing some crime. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people have uh, addictions and, and where do you go get help? It, this is tough for, for people to go out and try to find help that want to be helped. Uh, you know, the RCMP spends so much time uh, dealing with, uh, with the drug issue here in our community. But uh, Kirk, we've, we've had a, a great, uh, great conversation. It was, uh, it was pretty painless, eh? Yeah, it was too bad. Not what I expected, but yeah, it was good. Yeah, I think uh, our listeners learned a lot about uh, your background and it's fascinating. I'm sure we could have gone on for another hour and just, uh, you know, chatted about uh, some of the stories uh, uh, of your past. But, uh, you know, we'll bring you back for sure. And maybe we can dive into some good stories and good nuggets that maybe you'd be, you know, free to, to, to tell us now. Is there, <laughs> is there like a, 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 a limit on when you can actually start stel- telling your stories uh, about what happened some overseas? Of li- some of them are lifetime. Oh, you signed a lifetime non-disclosure agreement. Well, I think, uh, you know, you are one of the few lucky people in Canada that get to, f- that experience flying that uh, F-18, mm-hmm. an amazing plane, whether it's F-18, F-35, whatever the pilots around the world are flying with that. That is a, an amazing experience and, and quite a quite a job to have. And kudos to you. I could never do that. I mean, uh, I can't barely get in a plane as it is. But, uh, you know, uh, I really enjoyed uh, what you bring to council uh, with your experience. And uh, I think every council needs to have a fighter pilot or a, a soldier <laughs> and, uh, and and come on council. And uh, and we're starting to see, uh, you know, we've, we've bumped into a few, uh, uh, you know, at the conferences, uh, people that used to serve in yep. the armed forces, right? Yep. We bumped into them. They're, be, they're, they're, they're becoming a little bit more active because they see the value that they can bring to municipalities. And it's really just, we, we just kind of want to bring a reality pill and um, and just just inform the public, so, you know, try and, try and tell them like, the, you know, look, look outside the hovel, like go beyond your own sidewalk and look what's on the other side because in most cases you're going to see somebody you like and you're going to see something that's good and or something that you want to see better or change. Yeah. And so uh, that was one of the things that um, interested me with. Well, uh, you look at uh, our community, about 15,000 people and about 26 to 2,800 people work on the wing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's all that talent out there and, and yep. get involved in your community. A lot of them are all volunteers and many of the different activities yep. in our community. But a few have, have tried to, to break the come into council and they've been a pleasure to work with. Uh, and so appreciate. Uh, we look forward to your next initiative. Uh, you, you'll come up with another uh, something that will be bring for notice of motion. And uh, we still got a year to try to stir it up some more. But I think the gun one, I think uh, we're looking forward to that on the FCM in, in uh, June of uh, yep. 2021, I'm sure it'll be there yep i hope it's a win and you know just get out and vote when uh, the next election comes around oh yeah voting is huge i, I don't I, I still don't understand why people don't vote but uh, you know it must be a good tv show or something or netflix <laughs> all righty thanks a lot kirk uh, kevin any final words for you no, you're I'm good, good to, uh, i'm good till next time